Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 305, Two Readings of Mark, Popular or Esoteric, Part 1. In these two episodes of the Trinity's podcast, I'm going to discuss dueling readings of the gospel according to Mark. According to basically all modern scholars, of all the gospels we possess, this is the earliest. We know it's earlier than Matthew and Luke because Matthew and Luke use and adapt the contents of the gospel according to Mark. There are good reasons to think that the gospel according to John, the fourth gospel, is a bit later than this one. The first thing to understand is why there are, nowadays, wildly different readings of the gospel according to Mark. One thing that theologians and apologists usually will not tell lay people is that the historical critical method of interpretation has really taken away most of the traditional proof texts for the Trinity and for the deity of Christ. So theologians among themselves will sometimes complain that New Testament scholars, whether Catholic or Protestant, conservative or liberal, simply ignore these issues of God's triunity and Christ having a divine nature and not just a human nature. If you want to hear a Trinitarian theologian discussing this fact about this modern problem that conservative theologians have, check out Podcast 252 featuring Dr. Fred Sanders. They ignore them because they're not first-century ideas. And if you want to interpret a first-century source in the way that it was meant by the author and in the way that it would have been understood by its earliest audiences, then you need to stick to first-century ideas. If you're explaining the American Revolution, you can't go talking about the Internet. That's just wildly out of time. It's what historians call an anachronism projecting a later idea, a later concern, back into an earlier time period where it simply doesn't belong. That's how a lot of New Testament scholars view the Trinity and the Incarnation. In their truly developed forms, like you see in the creeds of 381 and 451, they simply don't exist in the first century, and so they're irrelevant to correctly interpreting first century sources, like the New Testament writings. Right, so you can't just gesture at the Great Commission to prove that God is triune. That doesn't work. You can't just point at Jesus' statement that the Father and I are one to say, aha, they have the same essence, so they're clearly homoousian. That's just an anachronism. But the problem is that these theories, these speculations about God's triunity, God being tripersonal, and about the deity of Christ, his having two natures, Those theories are central to any significantly Catholic Christian theology. So some Christian theologies more or less stick to the Bible, but to the extent that they're small c Catholic, then they think it's very important and central to the Christian message that it should include the Trinity and the deity of Christ. Now, in former days, what a lot of scholars, liberal, mainstream, or conservative would say is that you can see clear development in the theologies and Christologies in the New Testament writings. So then they would say, well, of course you don't see the deity of Christ or the Trinity in the gospel according to Mark, but they start to come in maybe in Matthew and Luke, and you do see them in John. Well, I think that's quite mistaken, but that's a subject for another couple of podcasts. 
Nowadays, in conservative circles, there's a very strong backlash against any kind of developmental view on these matters. So they want to say, no, the highest Christology was there from the very earliest moment. Now, the very earliest portions of the New Testament are the undisputed letters of Paul. But if you're sticking to the Gospels, the earliest moment that we have is this Gospel, the second Gospel in the order we print them, the Gospel according to Mark. And so there's a new way of interpreting Mark that's currently in vogue. And according to this, and you'll hear a detailed version of this next week, the Trinity and the deity of Christ are just trickily encoded into the book throughout the book, so that the truly wise and spiritual and learned reader like yourself may discern them there. I'm calling that an esoteric reading of this gospel. It's reading it as having a concealed message that's only accessible to the few. In my view, this is completely wrong-headed. As New Testament scholars say, genre matters. Genre is foundational to interpreting any writing. You need to know if something is an allegory, for instance. You need to know if something is a work of fiction, like a fantasy tale or a bedtime story, or if something is meant to be literally true, something akin to history. These are uncontroversial points. But I'm making a point that I think has recently become controversial in these extreme conservative circles. And that point is that this is the type of book that was designed to be understood by basically anybody. And so because of that, while it's not without artfulness on the part of its author, it is not pulling any tricky moves. It doesn't have any encoded hidden messages. It writes its message in bold letters, puts it on a big flag, and waves it in your face in practically every chapter of the book, till you just can't miss this point. So if you're reading it as having a tricky, hidden message, some secret thing that can't be said but's been artfully encoded within it, I claim that you're over-reading it and that you're misreading it. So in this episode, I'm going to present a reading of this book as a whole, focusing on what it says about Christ, who's the main subject of the book. And I'm going to show how throughout the book, an ordinary hearer would be able to figure out what's going on. Who's the ordinary hearer? My assumption here is that a main intended audience for this book would have been house churches. We know from Paul that the earliest Christians met in small assemblies, in houses, maybe a larger house, maybe a rich person's house, but they didn't have church buildings yet. And one of the main things they did was read the apostolic writings, such as letters from Paul, and such as the gospel according to Mark. Who was in these assemblies? Were these learned assemblies of scholars? Were these gatherings of the smart, of the wise, of the highly educated? Absolutely not. Again, we know from Paul that there were men and women, they were rich and poor, they were free and slaves, there were adults and children. Now, if you're going to write a book for an audience like that, you better keep it interesting, you better not make it too abstract, you should make the action keep on moving along, have vivid scenes and characters, and you shouldn't be encoding any hidden messages into the thing. You want the 12-year-old to get it. You want the illiterate slave to get it. You want the day laborer to get it. They're sitting there listening to somebody reading this book. They might even just sit there and listen to the whole book being read in a session, or maybe they read it in two sessions. It's not a very long book. Now, it's not like nobody would be reading. Of course, there were people who could read too. 
But anyway, my assumption is that a main audience for this book that was intended by its human author is the house church, this mixed crowd. There might be a few educated people in there, probably mostly uneducated or not very educated. When the Trinity's podcast returns, things that we don't find in the Gospel according to Mark. If you think about how the other Gospels are interpreted, and if you think about how the letters of the New Testament are interpreted, it's really striking how much is not in this Gospel that is arguably, at least according to some people, in these other New Testament books. Is there any assertion here of the eternality of the Son, or even just a clear assertion of His pre-existence? I would say not. It's certainly not an explicit teaching of the book. I don't think it's implied. I don't think it's assumed. Now, Jesus says a couple of times that he's come to do this or that, but it's easy to take that in the sense of a prophet coming to the public, and he's explicitly presented as a prophet here. And he's not ever presented as having come from another realm, having gained a human nature, having gotten his body or his body and soul from Mary, whereas the divine portion of him or the divine nature of him had always existed. It's just not in the book, this Nicene and later obsession with the eternality or at least the preexistence of the Son. There's nothing in this book that sounds remotely like Jesus is the creator, or even that God created through him. Jesus mentions creation a couple of times, but he seems to assume there that God is the one creator, that is to say, the Father. Jesus is never addressed as or described as, quote, God. That's interesting. Jesus is never portrayed as having an obvious divine attribute such as omniscience, omnipotence, eternality, underived authority, or being the unique creator. And there's nothing that even looks like an assertion or an assumption that he has a divine nature. Now, if all of these things count in favor of the deity of Christ, and so kind of indirectly support the Trinity when you find them in, let's say, John or Paul's writings, if the presence of these types of statements about Jesus counts for, quote, the deity of Christ, why wouldn't the absence of them count against it? It seems to me you can't have it both ways. I am laying aside here the fact that many of these other occurrences would be controversial interpretations. But even if they're not, if these things count for the deity of Christ in Paul or John or even Luke, why wouldn't the lack of these things count against this hypothesis that Jesus is being presented as divine in this book? I mean, they would seem to be, on the face of it, very important claims, so you would expect the author to include them if the author believed them. In this book, he's consistently portrayed as a man, a real man, not an apparent man. In chapter 6, verse 3, he said to be a son of Mary. 
Interesting omission there. The whole book portrays him as a servant of God, as you see him described in the earliest sermon in Acts. Specifically, he's God's Messiah, his Christ, his special human agent, the one who's destined to be the king of Israel. In this book, Jesus is never worshipped, certainly not worshipped as God. There are a couple of verses, chapter 5, verse 6, and chapter 15, verses 19, where some older translations, like the King James Version, will say that Jesus was worshipped. These are examples of the word proskuneo, which is more properly translated in those contexts that someone is bowing down to Jesus. And that's how you have it in better, more modern translations. You can use that word in some context for religious worship, but that doesn't seem to be what's happening in those places. Rather, someone's just kneeling down before him to submit themselves to him or to do him honor, to do him homage like you would give to a king such as the one who's destined to be the king of Israel. Jesus prays to God. He's tempted. You can't tempt God, right? He's recognized as a prophet, more than a prophet, yes, but also a great prophet, someone who brings God's message, who speaks on behalf of God, someone who's sent by God. So, not God, At the end of the book, he's killed, and he's raised back to life, and the reader is to understand, by God. And in chapter 13, he says that he doesn't know something which God knows. God can't be tempted. God can't be referred to as a prophet of God. You can't kill God. God is essentially immortal, so you're not going to have God raising God back to life. And God is essentially omniscient, so there isn't going to be something God doesn't know especially if it's also something that God knows. So, on the face of it, no, he's not presented as God in this book. He's presented as the Messiah, as the Son of God. In chapter 12, he briefly discusses Jewish monotheism, and he seems to just accept the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He seems to accept that just as his Jewish interlocutor understands it. He doesn't say, hey, that's all good as far as it goes, but you don't want to be too stingy with your monotheism. You don't want to be too restrictive. You want to realize there are multiple persons in God. No, I mean, God is a single he in this book. It's a single person. It's Yahweh. Of course, they don't use the word Yahweh because that had fallen out of usage. Jews of this time considered it impious to utter the divine name in Hebrew. So here he's referred to as the Lord something that we'll talk a lot more about next week. This guy, this Christ, this son of Mary, doesn't seem to be presented as God in the flesh. He doesn't seem like a God-man. He doesn't seem like someone who's equally human and divine. It sounds like a very special man called to a special mission, empowered by God's Spirit to do amazing, miraculous things and to bring a message and a depth of revelation that other people have not been able to bring. Clearly, his mission is unique. Not all the characters in the story understand all that's involved in being God's Messiah. That's just a cursory glance at the character of Jesus as presented in this book. Now, remember, it's part of my hypothesis that this book was meant to be understood by the masses. So, if I'm right about that, you would expect the main point or points of the book to be really writ large, to be paraded throughout the book, 
to not be kept on the down low, to not be insinuated, implied, hinted at, and so on, you'd expect it to just be, so to speak, in bold letters throughout the gospel. And this is, in fact, what we find in the gospel according to Mark. This is why an early reader really couldn't miss the point. If they just could stay awake for most of it, they would understand the main thesis of the book. What's the main subject of the book? It's clearly Jesus. God, of course, comes into it. The fate of Israel comes into it. The Romans are there. But the real main character is Jesus. How we're to understand him, what his mission was. And if our critical editions are to be trusted... There are some Greek manuscripts that don't have the last phrase here, but if our critical editions are right about the Greek, then the narrator just spills the beans literally in the very first sentence. The book starts by saying, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, comma, the Son of God. Now you'll find out later in the book that Son of God is a title for this human Messiah. There's your thesis right there. It's the same as saying that Jesus is the Christ. Now, what the author does here is he wants to jump into the action as fast as he can. He doesn't talk about the birth of Jesus, much less any pre-existence or eternal existence. He jumps right into Jesus's introduction through the prophet John the Baptist. So, he quotes a couple of different prophetic passages. He mashes them together, and he says, as it's written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, believe it or not, these verses in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, are what set off what I think of as a kind of conspiracy theorist down a wrong trail interpreting this book. The problem is that in the original context, the Lord here, that would in Hebrew have been the name Yahweh. So, the subject was originally Yahweh coming to his own people. Okay, so is the author throwing a hint here that Jesus is Yahweh himself, Yahweh in human form, a God-man? Well, one answer is we'll see what the rest of the book says. But keep in mind, the original audience would have known a couple of things. First of all, they know that the word Lord has become ambiguous they would have understood that there's a difference between the Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know from Acts that this was based on Psalm 110.1, which early Christians understood to be a prophecy regarding Jesus, where the Lord, that's Yahweh, says to my Lord, seemingly in the original context a human king, now understood as being the human Messiah, Yahweh, the Lord, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So, they understood this to be a prophecy of the post-resurrection exaltation of Jesus. And consequently, they could use Lord to refer to God, and they could use Lord to refer to the Lord Jesus, exalted to this high position at God's right hand. Now, the term Lord was already ambiguous. It could be used as a substitute for God's name. And as we see, particularly in the Synoptic Gospels, it could just mean Sir, or it could mean Master. Okay, well, now there's a fourth meaning. It's higher than Sir or Master, but it's lower than the meaning of substituting for the divine name. It's the Lord Jesus. It's a new Christian usage. So, knowing this... 
being familiar with this usage of Lord for the Son of God, for the Messiah, they wouldn't have jumped to the conclusion that Jesus is here being presented as God himself. Also, some of them, if they'd heard the gospel being preached before in these times, they would know that sometimes Christians understood an older prophecy as having a second and newer fulfillment. So it meant one thing in its original context, but beknownst only to God back then, it had another fulfillment coming. It had basically another meaning. A famous example of this is the prophecy about Emmanuel in Isaiah. In the Gospel according to Matthew, this is fulfilled in Jesus. Sure, but they also thought it was fulfilled in the time of Isaiah. This Emmanuel was a baby back in that time. So they're saying it had another fulfillment. So knowing this, just because a prophecy that originally had to do with Yahweh is now said to be fulfilled in the case of Christ, and it is fulfilled by Christ because the one preparing the way turns out to be the prophet John the Baptist, and the one who's coming to the public is the Lord, that's the Lord Jesus, as we find out later in this chapter. Did they also, some of them, think that God himself was coming to his people? Maybe. But in what sense would that be true? Is he coming himself? Let's see if the book says that. Or would he be coming in the sense of sending his special agent to his people? When the Trinity's podcast returns, different ways our author asserts his main thesis in this book. Okay, but back to the main thesis. I see five thrusts, five different ways in which our author asserts his main thesis in this book. I just gave the first thrust. The narrator says it in the very first sentence of the book. The second thrust is that this thesis is stated by friendly witnesses. It's stated by good guys in the narrative. Now, high point of the book is in chapter 8 where Jesus, after doing all these wonderful, miraculous things and bringing this, you could say, divine teaching, he confronts his disciples. He says, who do people say I am? They say, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. Then he presses the issue with them. But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah, the Christ. And it says, Jesus sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. So there's your friendly witness. Peter, a leader among the apostles, tells you who this is. It's the Christ. It's God's anointed one. It's the Messiah. Peter is a guy who gets it. As the reader, you're supposed to nod along with him when he says that. That's a high point in the book. Another friendly witness is blind Bartimaeus, who is healed in chapter 10. When he hears Jesus is coming by, he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, a descendant of David. This is someone who the Messiah was assumed to be. This just coheres with the rest of the book. 
So you have the narrator and you have friendly witnesses telling you that Jesus is God's Christ. Interestingly, there's a third thrust, which are what I call hostile witnesses. And I'm reading a little bit between the lines here, but I think the author here thinks that divine providence has set up even the bad guys so that the bad guys end up saying the truth about God's Messiah. So right in chapter 1, verse 24, Jesus is casting out an unclean spirit, and the spirit yells out through the man that he's inhabiting, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Right, that's the special agent, that's the Messiah. That's just another phrase for the same thing. It says a few verses down that he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In other words, they knew who he was. So that's one class of hostile witnesses. You see this hostile witness theme really prominently in chapters 14 and 15. At his trial, the high priest demands to know of him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Okay, so the Blessed One, that's a euphemism for God. He doesn't want to say God. So it means, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? That tells you that the Son of God is being understood as a title of God's Christ, of his Messiah. So despite himself, the high priest is confessing the main thesis of the book. Same with the Roman soldiers who are abusing Jesus in chapter 15. They put the crown of thorns on his head and salute him mockingly and say, Hail, King of the Jews! But he is the King of the Jews. That's his destiny as God's Messiah. Again, a hostile witness to the truth. Earlier in the same chapter, Pilate asks him, Are you the King of the Jews? So Pilate says it. When he's being crucified, they put a sign on the cross saying the king of the Jews, which is what he is. It says in 1529 that those who passed by derided Jesus, shaking their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, here are the Jewish elites, they were also mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now so that we may see and believe. Is Jesus actually, in this action, saving others? Mm Mm-hmm. That's what the author thinks. Is he the Messiah, as they said? Yep, that's what the author thinks. Is he the king of Israel? Yes, that's part of the job description of God's Messiah. Here are the bad guys, despite themselves, saying the truth. And finally, you have the centurion who witnesses Jesus dying and maybe sees some of the miraculous signs accompanying that. And he confesses, truly, this man was God's son. Or you could translate, truly, this man was a son of God. Is he a son of God? Yes. Is he the son of God? Yes. It's another hostile witness. So the narrator says the main point. Friendly witnesses say the main point. Numerous hostile witnesses say the main point. Fourth, 
you have Jesus's own clear claims in this book. They're not always explicit claims, as presented especially in the synoptics, had to be cautious about what he publicly said because people might take it the wrong way. But you don't have to make a claim explicit for it to be clear. So back in chapter 8, when Peter and the disciples' eyes are opened and they confess the truth about Christ, that he is God's Messiah, it says that Jesus sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Do you see he's implicitly agreeing with what Peter said there? He doesn't have to say, yes, I am. He's like, shh, don't tell anybody. Not, don't tell anybody because it's false. The reader reasonably assumes that Peter is not supposed to say that he's God's Messiah because it's true. It's just not quite time to proclaim it from the rooftops yet. There you have the main character implying the truth of the main thesis of this book. You have it again in chapter 14. When the high priest demands to know if he's the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One, Jesus says, I am. In other words, I am he. Let me put that in vernacular English for you. Yeah, that's me. Oh, and also, he says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He seems to be referring to the prophecy in Daniel about the one like a son of man who is brought into God's throne room and given power and dominion and glory. And he's basically saying, yes, I am the Messiah and God's going to vindicate me and I'm going to be in charge. The high priest tears his clothes and says that this is blasphemy. It's an interesting question why the high priest would think this is blasphemy. Is the reader supposed to think this is blasphemy? Well, this isn't blasphemy. It's not disrespect of God. It's not speaking against God somehow. This is the claim that Jesus is God's Christ. The high priest must be leaping to some conclusion that Jesus is not actually asserting, or he must have a rather expansive notion of blasphemy. But the author doesn't run with this blasphemy charge. He just moves right past it. Just slightly later in the book, chapter 15, talking to Pilate, the Roman governor, he demands to know, is Jesus the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you say so. In other words, you said it, not me. Now, is he disagreeing with Pilate? No, I think he's agreeing. He's doing it in sort of a passive way. And if these four categories of witnesses are not enough for you, By the way, God himself, a voice just coming out of like the sky, tells you who Jesus is. It's not clear how many of the characters in the story hear this, but you, the reader, hear this. The narrator is telling you what happened. So in chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus comes and gets baptized by John in the Jordan River. And it says, as he was coming up out of the water, he, Jesus, saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. Who's speaking there? Every listener knows. God. Jesus is the son of God. This is God. Later in the book referred to as Father. Again, the famous transfiguration scene in chapter 9. Jesus takes his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, up on a mountain with him. And it says he's transfigured before them. He becomes glorious. He appears to be dazzling white. They see Elijah and Moses talking to him. 
right? It's like he's their peers. I mean, what a privilege is that to talk to Elijah and Moses? And then eventually a cloud comes over them and, a, and out of the cloud comes a voice. Who's this speaking? Obviously, it's God. He says, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. And it says, suddenly, when the apostles looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. Listen to him, son of God. So the narrator directly tells you in his own voice, the friendly witnesses tell you, the hostile witnesses tell you, Jesus himself in this book implies the same thing, that he's the son of God, the Messiah. And if that's not enough, the booming voice of God comes out of the sky twice to just announce who Jesus is. Again, it's just the main point of the book. It's basically from the very start of the book all the way to the end of the book, just hammered rhythmically throughout the course of the book. You can't miss the point of this book. It's that Jesus is God's Christ. It can also be called the Son of God, or it can also be called the Son of Man, referring to Daniel. This claim that Jesus is God's Christ is said by the narrator. It's said repeatedly by friendly witnesses. It's said even more times by hostile witnesses. It's clearly, if not explicitly, asserted by the Lord Jesus himself, and it's directly stated in a miraculous manner two times by God Almighty. So I think we all know what the main point of this book is. Its main thesis should not be in dispute. I would say that the main thesis of this book is a fact, and it's a fact that any reading needs to account for. When the Trinity's podcast returns, what to make of this fact that the main thesis of this book is that Jesus is God's Christ? As we saw in the last segment, it's an indisputable fact that the main thesis of the gospel according to Mark is that Jesus is God's Messiah. We need to ask ourselves what the significance of that is. Notice that this point is perfectly compatible with, quote, a mere man understanding of Jesus. Suppose that Jesus began to exist when he was miraculously conceived in Mary. Would this author care if you thought that? It would seem not, because he does nothing at all to even hint, much less clearly teach, that Jesus' existence goes back to before his conception, or just back earlier than his human career. Is this thesis, this table-pounding, repeated main point, that Jesus is God's Christ, is this what you would expect from an author who thinks that Jesus is a God-man? or an author who thinks that Jesus is the second person of the triune God? I suggest not. Why would we not expect that to be the thesis? Because it's saying too little. It leaves the door wide open to those rascally Socinians, right? 
We have many centuries now, going back to about the time of Augustine, of what Christian writers sound like when they believe in the deity of Christ or in the triune God. And they would never make the main point of their entire presentation just be that Jesus is indeed the expected human Messiah. That would just be saying too little. So this obvious fact that we learned in the last segment about the main point of this book, that fact would be very surprising, very unexpected, if the author thought that Jesus is God, or just that Jesus is divine in the same way that the Father is divine. That's not what you'd expect. On the other hand, if the author thinks that Jesus is God's human Messiah, who came into existence somewhere in the miraculous pregnancy of his mother, then this is what you would expect to find as the main thesis of this book. And so, this observation about the main thesis of the book favors or confirms the hypothesis that the author holds to what you could call a human-only Christology, as opposed to a divine Christology, where Jesus has a divine nature or is God himself. Now, about the triune God, okay, so where does he come into this book? Well, this concept just isn't in the book anywhere. When it says God, it means the Father, and then you have this Son of God, but that's not understood to entail a sameness of essence. There's no evidence for that. The author doesn't say it. The sympathetic characters don't draw that conclusion that Jesus is divine. The hostile characters don't draw that conclusion that Jesus is divine. Never clearly, right? You might overread that blasphemy concern of the high priest in this fashion, but that's not a clear point of the book, right? And Jesus himself doesn't interpret Son of God as entailing sharing the divine essence. So it looks like the Trinity just isn't an idea in this book. And it looks like the full deity of Christ, understood as Christ having both a divine and human nature, it's just not in this book. It's not asserted. It's not implied. It's not assumed. It's not so much as hinted at on the face of it. Is there Trinitarian monotheism in this book? Well, there is monotheism. It's in chapter 12. The scribe asked Jesus what the most important commandment is. And Jesus says, It's hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he continues, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second greatest command is, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The scribe says, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and beside him there is no other. And to love him with all the heart, etc., this is more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So notice that his Jewish interlocutor here thinks that God is a single self. And if you look elsewhere in the book, this is just the one that Jesus is referring to as Father. Mark 8.38 Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Who's his father? That's the one true God. That's Yahweh, right? He's coming in the glory of God, this son of man. Mark eleven twenty five. 25, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. Your father in heaven, aka God. Mark 13, 32, but about that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the Father. 
In other words, only God. Chapter 14, verse 36, Jesus is praying in the garden. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. So Jesus there is submitting to God's will. God is the Father. So there is monotheism in this book. It's not Trinitarian monotheism. It looks like it's Unitarian monotheism. God is a single he, namely the one Jesus calls Father, my Father. That's the God of the Jews. That's the one true God. He offers no revision to this core claim of Jewish theology. He has a chance to, and he just strides right past it. That's not a teaching point of his, according to this book. Now, immediately after that passage of Jesus' interaction with the Jewish scribe, there's an interesting little interaction regarding Psalm 110.1, which I mentioned before. It says, while Jesus was teaching in the temple, he said, how can the scribe say that the Messiah is the son of David? In other words, a descendant of David. David himself, by the Holy Spirit, declared, and now he's quoting Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That ends the quotation. Jesus continues, David himself calls him Lord, so how can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. What conclusion is the reader supposed to draw here? Is this a hint of the deity of Christ? Does David call the Messiah Lord because the Messiah is David's God? Okay, the characters in the narrative don't know what to do with this teaching. But I suggest even the slave or the 12-year-old in the house church of the year 65 AD, who's been paying attention to gospel presentations, he actually knows what's going on. The answer is supposed to be that, yes, Jesus is a descendant of David as Messiah. He's that by definition. So it's not denying that he's a descendant of David nor is it denying that he's a man. How can David call him his Lord? Well, because he's going to be exalted by God to his right hand. Just like the Son of Man figure in Daniel 7, Jesus, according to this book, even before his crucifixion, he's basically issuing this as a prediction, but it's a prediction they're not going to understand beforehand, because at this time they're not expecting the Messiah to be crucified and have to be vindicated by being raised and exalted. So Jesus is a son of David, but he's also the son of God, the Messiah, and he's going to be raised to God's right hand and installed in the highest position under God. Again, we know this from Paul's undisputed letters like 1 Corinthians. So there's one God, and then under that one God, there's the one Lord. It says in Acts that God has made him both Lord and Christ. To be made Lord is to be given this position under God. So that's a position that's over David, that's over all other human beings. So that's how David can call him his Lord, because he's been given this super high position under God. He's been given that by God. Now on the theme of being given things by God, let's talk about a couple of commonly misunderstood passages and ask if the original readers would have misunderstood them. In chapter 2, Jesus sees the faith of the paralyzed man who's being brought to Jesus to be healed, and he says to that paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. So in verse 6 it says, 
Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, some present day readers, we all know by experience, they stop right there. They stop with the unbelieving enemies of Jesus who doubt him, who mistrust him, who are suspicious. How dare this guy forgive sins? Only God can do that. What does he think he's God? Now, be careful. Even though, by divine providence, the bad guys end up saying the truth about Jesus in this very book, that doesn't mean that you can always agree with the bad guys. right? And they're saying this in their heart. They dare not say it out loud. It's hostile. But Jesus is able to tell somehow what they're thinking. It's unclear whether he just sees the looks on their faces and knows how they think, or whether this is a, a word of knowledge, a divine revelation to Jesus. But in any case, it says... At once, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and take your mat and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Now, if a reader is just searching through this book trying to find hints and indications of Jesus' deity, you know what that person's going to say about this text. He's going to agree with the bad guys. But how is the original reader going to hear this? Notice that Jesus here refers to himself as the Son of Man, and that seems to be a reference to Daniel chapter 7. Again, the Son of Man isn't God himself, it's this seemingly human or humanoid figure who's brought into God's throne room and exalted. So by calling himself the Son of Man, he's distinguishing himself from the one true God. And what he's saying is, by healing this guy, I'm going to show you that God is with me and that I have the authority not only to heal, but also to forgive like I just did. So he's saying that this miracle will prove that he has authority on earth to forgive sins. He has the authority. I suggest that the original reader or hearer is going to understand this to be saying that God has authorized and empowered Jesus both to heal and to forgive. Not just pronounce forgiveness, but to actually forgive on God's behalf. And that's why in the next verse, they get up and glorify God. That doesn't mean glorify Jesus. It means glorify God for having done such amazing, powerful things through this amazing man who's a prophet and more. So throughout the whole book, he's saying not that Jesus is God himself, not that Jesus is divine, but rather that Jesus is God's unique human agent, his Messiah. Maybe he lacks a human father. Maybe that's something the book assumes the reader will already know. And so the writer just casually refers to Jesus as the son of Mary. That's a possible interpretation. Or maybe the author doesn't know that tradition. I don't know. A little later in the book, he interprets the laws about the Sabbath. How could someone do that unless they were God, you say? Well, we know he's not God in this book. He's the son of God. And he's also confessed later on to be a prophet a prophet at least as great as Moses, perhaps greater. The wind and the sea obey him in chapter 4. Who is this? Who can it be? Well, the reader already knows. For three chapters already, once we get to chapter 4, 
the first three chapters, it's been pounding the point that Jesus is the Son of God. If you didn't get it there, in the next chapter, the demons call him out as the Son of the Most High God. Right? So not the Most High God, but someone else, a human son, not unlike the Israelite kings of old being referred to as a son of God or the son of God. Chapter 6, he's a prophet. He's been given his commission, his message from God. He even passes on a kind of authority to his disciples. Chapter 7, miracles that are at least as great as Moses's. He's again authoritatively interpreting the law. So a prophet, but not just an ordinary prophet, seemingly even greater than the one who introduced him, John the Baptist. When the Trinity's podcast returns, a concluding thought experiment. things we could say about the thesis of the book. The parable of the vineyard clearly presents Jesus not as God, but as the son of the one God. When he comes into Jerusalem, he comes in the name of the Lord. That's in the name of God. Again, special agent of God. While on the cross, Jesus prays to God. He feels forsaken by God. This is a feeling that you would not have if you were all-powerful and all-knowing. Nor would you relate to God in an I-thou relationship if you are God himself. I want you to use your imagination now. Never mind the things that you think you know from the rest of the New Testament. Try to imagine with me that this was the only book of the New Testament, that this was the only widely accepted distinctive Christian scripture. If you like, imagine that there were a group of Christians, I don't know, on the island of Madagascar off the coast of Africa. And for some reason, these Christians had only ever received the gospel according to Mark. And they formed their views on the basis of this book. And they lived on this island for all the rest of Christian history, just enjoying this gospel according to Mark. Let's say with the Old Testament scriptures too. They just think, hey, this is the capstone of scripture here. You got the Old Testament and then you got Mark. Now ask yourself, are these Christians with those scriptures, are they going to agree that God died for your sins, or just that God died on the cross? One would think not. Are they going to agree that Jesus is God himself? Well, where would they get that from this book? Are they going to agree that Jesus is a God-man, that he has a divine nature in addition to his human nature? Not based on this book, right? Are they going to think that his knowledge is limited in his human nature, but in his divine nature, he has unlimited knowledge? How would you get that from this book? I mean, we do know that he's a prophet, and so God will reveal truths to him that are not revealed to other people, but that falls far short of knowing everything, right? Like how many carbon atoms there are in the universe, or how many electrons there are in Alpha Centauri. 
Are they going to think that Jesus has always existed and that he created the world, or at least that God created the world through him? How would they get that from this book? Are they going to think that Jesus is the God of Israel? Presumably not. I mean, unless they're so confused as to think that the God of Israel can be his own son. They're not going to think that. They're going to agree with the main thesis of this book, assuming this is the only book they have and that they accept it as inspired scripture. They're going to think that there's one God. That's the God of Israel, the one who has the proper name Yahweh in the Hebrew scriptures. And they will think that this book presents Jesus as his unique human son. He's born to Mary. He eats. He gets worried. He sleeps. He prays. He's a man. Is he a mere man? Well, I mean, there's nothing mere about this guy, right? He's been given authority to forgive sins and to heal. He's been raised from the dead and exalted to God's right hand. He's referred to as God's unique son. I mean, that doesn't sound very mere, right? But mere man is just an old pejorative term for a Christology that doesn't involve Jesus having a divine nature. Divine nature? If a nature is a being, like an individual, then the divine nature here is God. It's the Father, this guy who speaks to Jesus and calls him his son. In other words, you could say that the divine element or the divine nature who is at work in the man Jesus, yeah, it's God. Like Paul says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And like you see in Luke and John, God is empowering the Messiah for his miraculous ministry by his own spirit. If a divine nature is a set of qualities, well, there's no reason to think that this Jesus is essentially omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, eternal, that he exists asse and necessarily that he's uncreated. Just don't have that teaching about Jesus here. Now, I think even if you're a Trinitarian, even if you think the gospel according to John and the letters of Paul teach that God is triune, that Jesus is fully God and man, etc., I think you should still agree with everything I've said in this podcast. You should just hold that there's a lesser degree of revelation about Jesus and God in this gospel, for whatever reason. Now, maybe that's a little weird, because Paul's letters may well be earlier than this gospel, and so divine revelation might be going backwards a little bit in your view, but look, we have to be honest to the book. The book's very plain-spoken. It wears its thesis on its face, not just once, not just at the high point, not just at the beginning, not just at the end. It's just stamped all over the book on pretty much every page of it. Jesus is God's Christ. There's no sense here that that's just sort of a surface truth or a less important truth. No, that's the big thing. That's the big revelation about this man, Jesus, that he is God's Messiah. If you think that's a mere man, Maybe you need to think again about what a big deal it is to be God's unique Messiah. What present-day conservative scholars are doing is they're trying to read the Gospels as consistent with one another, and they think that the Gospel according to John clearly presents the deity of Christ and even the Trinity, and so the Synoptic Gospels must as well. Well... I agree with their assumption that the gospel should agree in their core claims about God and Christ, but I just turn the other direction. The gospel according to John doesn't teach that Jesus is divine in the way that the one God is divine. 
If you want to see what my basic approach to the gospel according to John is, check out episode 70 of the Trinity's podcast. I won't go into it here. So it's understandable what they're doing. They're trying to harmonize the synoptics with the fourth gospel. So one way to do it is by hook or by crook to try to find hidden this thesis that Jesus is God or that he's fully divine in this book. As we've just seen, it doesn't seem like that kind of book. It seems like a very straightforward, popular level book, clear in its main claims, and not something with a message that only the learned or the most spiritual can discern. In the next Trinity's podcast, I'll look at one of these newfangled Deity of Christ interpretations of the Gospel according to Mark. In fact, I'll look at the version presented in the book recommended in episode 276. That book is called The Essential Trinity. And in it, scholars argue that in all the New Testament books, God is presented as Trinity. And yeah, even in the Gospel according to Mark, you've got both the Trinity and the full deity of Christ. Really? Well, that's a reading that clashes with the very flat-footed, simple reading that I've presented here. I'm trying to interpret the book according to its actual genre, and that genre really precludes fancy footwork, hints, indications, and so on. You, as an honest reader, will have to pick between these readings. That's your job as a diligent and serious and humble student of Scripture. Thanks for listening. This week's thinking music has been the track Into the J by Admiral Bob. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.